Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today's episode is sponsored by the new book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. Is there really going to be an implosion? Well, two years ago, Steven Spielberg said that there's going to be an implosion, mega-budget movies are going to go crashing to the ground, and that's going to change the paradigm. And with the news that the new Fantastic Four movie was a huge flop, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an implosion, but it could mean there could be an erosion over time. So wouldn't you like to know how to survive it? So that's why you want to head over to survivetheimplosion.com to get more information about the new book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online, and survive the Hollywood implosion while doing it. Today I have a special guest, Alex Ferrari of IndieFilmHustle.com. He's a filmmaker, an entrepreneur, and we just had an amazing conversation that lasted like two hours. So this is actually part one, so you're not going to have to sit through two hours. You can listen to part one of it, and then you can catch part two later on. Now, Alex has been in the film business for over 20 years, but just recently, about over a month ago, he just released this new website called IndieFilmHustle.com, and it's fantastic. I, when I first saw it, I, I looked through it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really well done. So I had to have him on the podcast because he's also a podcaster, and a lot of the stuff that he wants to share with the indie film world resonates very much with the same message of Film Trooper. So the cool thing is when you sign up for IndieFilmHustle.com, you get this initial email that Alex shares with you how he made $90,000 on his short film, Broken. This is way back in 2006 before really YouTube took off. But he'll explain how essentially he created all these DVD bonus features of how to make a film using Broken. So it was essentially like a how-to guide of indie filmmaking way before, you know, because now you can just go on YouTube and see tons of videos of how to, you know, make your film. So Alex had made that film broken when he was living in Florida. So when he headed out to uh, L.A., you'll hear in the story, in the interview, of how much he had to hustle and how he essentially built a post-production company uh, focusing on editing and coloring and being a really good colorist. Alex also has a lot of experience in the film festival world. And on his site, IndieFilmHustle.com, he offers a free uh, book, an e-book, called Six Secrets to Get Into Film Festivals for Cheap or Free. So all you have to do is go over to IndieFilmHustle.com and pick that up, and you'll get the chance to see all the great stuff that he's doing. Anyhow, like I was saying, like Alex and I just sort of hit it off, and we just kept talking. And actually, even though we recorded like about two hours worth of stuff that you guys can listen to, we actually ended up talking for another hour after the interview. <laughs> so um, you'll see that we kind of diverge a little bit in different topics, but I think it's a really fun listen in terms of hearing how much that Alex has hustled and how much all of us need to keep hustling uh, as we build out our uh, filmmaking careers. So without further ado, here he is, Alex Ferrari of Indie Film Hustle, here on the Film Trooper Podcast. Tell me why you started Indie Film Hustle. Um, I kind of have an idea, but I'd love to hear what your your thoughts are. Well, I mean, I've been in the business for about 20, over a little bit over 20 years now, and I've worked on... 
uh, I, I guess I guess they made over a thousand different projects between features, shorts, music videos, promos, uh, commercials, all that kind of stuff over the years. And I've had a lot of independent filmmakers in my uh, my post room. Uh, I've been a, a post production guy for a long time, as well as a director. But where I got my start and where I do a lot of my work is in post production uh, with editing and uh, post production supervision, color grading, VFX, all that kind of stuff. So I've gotten really when you, I don't know if you, if you're you when you're in a post room you become really close with the people in the room because you're in there eight ten hours a day sometimes <laughs> longer for weeks at a time so you become you know either you hate each other <laughs> or you love each other and generally uh I, I like the, the former right 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 uh, so, so um you become really close with these artists and uh, a lot of a lot of um Filmmakers like working with me because I'm a filmmaker. I'm not just an editor. I'm not just a colorist. I'm I'm a filmmaker, working filmmaker as well. So um, I saw a, a lot of these films or a lot of these projects. I got real front, like front row seats, um, to see how their films progressed all the way from how they started making it because I hear the entire story. Mm -hmm. And then when you're editing it and when you're coloring it or doing VFX on it or whatever, you you see all the. I always call it the uh, the soft underbelly. Of the of the filmmaking process, I see it. I see it all. There's nothing you can't hide it in the raw footage. Like it's there. Yeah. If it's good, it's bad or indifferent. It's there. So I see things that happened on the set. I see things that are happening in production, or um, and more so after in post production. So I started seeing um, how they started the project, went through the whole thing, and then after uh, afterwards, which is always fascinating to me, see where some of these movies go, and um, many of them uh, just didn't make it. They got either taken advantage of or abused or um, just take it just I, I, I like to say uh, just chewed up by the by the industry uh, because they were either just inexperienced or didn't know or for whatever reasons ego a lot of times hmm. um, like we all we've all gone through that uh, so what I wanted to do is create a place where I can actually kind of pay it forward and give a lot of uh, the um, experience and um, that I've gone through with all of all of these projects, including my own, um, to to everybody to kind of help them out because as a filmmaker, I want other filmmakers to succeed. And there is so much out there for us. Uh, you know, it's I never consider one filmmaker competing against another filmmaker. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a there's five billion or seven billion people on the planet. You know, you don't need a lot of people to like your movie to make a living. And, and I'll go into <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah. go into that later. But um, like one example, perfect example is one of the best projects I ever worked on. And I really loved it. Uh, I worked on a film called Obsolidia, and Obsolidia was a small hundred thousand um, dollar feature film, um, no stars, shot in the in the uh, Death Valley in the desert. Um, very kind of quirky story about a guy who's writing a um, uh, an encyclopedia on things that are obsolete or becoming obsolete. Uh, then he falls in love with uh, one of his subjects, which is a film projection, a film projectionist, uh, and then they go on a road trip. So it's it's a really quiet little thing, a uh, quiet little movie. Um, and they brought I I found they found me on I think Mandy or something like that. Mm. Uh, so it was like really out of the dark. They go, look, I don't have a lot of money. Do you mind doing this? It was shot on Red. It was early days of Red camera so i was one of the few guys who uh, in the early days really knew how to work the workflow fairly well so we worked together they were the sweetest people uh diane and uh chris her husband they they were awesome so we go through the whole process absolutely no expectations none whatsoever i mean they're it, it, on paper this this movie has no chance in hell of ever 
even being sold, let alone being successful. Just because of all the things that convention says. It has yeah. no stars. It's not genre. It doesn't have action. There's no nudity. You know, It's not going to travel well. There's a lot of things that go in against it. So she submits it to a little, sun, a little film festival called Sundance. And uh, she got accepted. She was one of the 13 feature films in competition. And we were like, she didn't know anybody. Um, she just submitted it. And it was the lottery ticket. And she didn't only win one, she won two awards. She won the Alfred P. Sloan Award and she won um, Best Cinematography, which I colored the film. So I'm, I'm a little proud of that. I know the DP did a lot of, a lot of work, but I, I, I like to think I helped a little bit. Right. Um, and I saw her trajectory, how she got an agent, how it took her years to get her next film off the ground, mm. all this stuff. But she was successful. She was able to sell it. She did make a profit. Um, but it was fascinating to watch. Um, the whole process so a lot of things like that i've gone through with multiple different features and that's basically why i opened up indie film house so i just wanted to kind of pay it forward uh and help uh, filmmakers as much as i can let me ask you um since you've seen you know like a lot of it you know in terms of the creation to the sales or not sales um in your perspective how does someone make money in the film business as a like a writer director of their film or producer, you know, it's a, it's a loaded question. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, it is a very loaded question. I'm still trying to figure it out myself, but um, from my perspective, I think that there's a bunch of different angles you can go at it. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I think I, I, I did a film called broken years ago um, it was a short film. Did it about eleven years ago. Shot it on mini DV, and um, looks great. How, by the way, oh, I, I, you know, oh, I've yes. only seen the trailer, but uh, oh, this you. is two thousand six. Yeah, two thousand five. It was released. Okay, yeah. two thousand five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I shot it in two thousand four. Released two thousand five. I appreciate that. That little trailer. You have no idea how far. And I'll go into <laughs> a little bit of that in a minute. Okay. But um, so anyway, I did this little movie called Broken, and. Um, no stars, you know, shot in West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, you know, shot on mini DV. And I colored the whole thing myself and final cut off of a television. Oh, <laughs> not interesting. A, okay. Not a caliber. The first time I ever colored anything. I had yeah, never yeah. colored a thing in my life using filters in final cut. Like there was no like I used like four or five different filter packages. And then it took me two and a half weeks to get the color, like mm-hmm. just to, just to find it and then color it anyway. So. I don't want to geek out in the post stuff. Uh, <laughs> sorry, if I if I tend to go a little too geeky, let me know. Um, so anyway, I I put this movie out and then I started marketing it myself, uh, guerrilla style. I started going out there, posting on every forum I could find, and creating a website, creating um, a trailer, uh, the trailer that you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just figured, I'm like, all right, so we've spent a grand on this. Now, I you know, as a filmmaker, that early state stage of my career, I was like, well. Yeah, I wanted to make money, but it wasn't the main focus. You know, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to create art. I wanted to get it out there. I wanted to get my name out there. I wanted to see if it can lead to some other things. But I said, you know what? Let me let me put together a little DVD of a film school because I at that time, believe it or not, uh, YouTube was it's. I think it was a year old, (laughs) and Google hadn't bought it yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, and there was no content in the world out there that I could find that was focused to independent filmmakers, believe it or not. Now there's just a deluge of it. But there was no 
no information about how to edit on Final Cut, how to how to color, how to market your short, how to do pre-production with my camera, you know, with with the low-end stuff. You had a ton of stuff for the million-dollar movies, a lot of DVD extras and so on, but not really focused on on what uh, what we were trying to do, you know, low-budget independent film shorts and features. So I put together about three and a half hours of behind the scenes. It took me about six weeks to to put it all together. Hmm. Five commentary tracks. I mean, I, I loaded this DVD with so much information. It was basically a little mini film school from... I even went into how to market, how to, you know, pre-production, post-production, uh, production, marketing, the whole ball of wax. And then I built up a community. And this is before any of the stuff that, you know, kind of we do now. Uh, there was no Facebook. MySpace was kind of the thing at the time. I did get a little bit of traction from MySpace. There was no Twitter. There was none of that stuff. Social media was still kind of in its, in, in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And um, I just promoted the hell out of it. And I remember day one. I created such a buzz from you know getting a lot of reviews on movie sites and that trailer. Um, the importance of that trailer is I can't even underestimate. I can't under uh, can't underestimate how important a trailer is. That trailer f- traveled so much farther than any of my any any, any of the, the movie or anything else. It traveled into millions of places that the movie never went to, mm-hmm. um, and because of that, it got reposted and it got. Uh, you know, I got articles written about it and I got reviews and all that. So I'd built up so much press about it. The second I released it, I still remember this day. It was like one of the best sounds of my life. All I heard was my PayPal going ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it was so cool. Uh, you know, it was so as a filmmaker, as an artist, you want to sell your stuff. You want to you want people to like it. And I think the first day we sold like two or three hundred DVDs. You know, at twenty dollars a pop, wow, uh, um, which is a lot. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. In those days, I mean, yeah. Jesus. Uh, I mean, today, I mean, I wouldn't mind selling three hundred DVDs, but um, now you would do it digitally. But that's mm-hmm. a whole other conversation. Um, so we, I mean, we literally didn't even have stamps. Like we, <laughs> we had nothing. We had no way. We literally went down to the post office and hand wrote all of the labels, oh all the stamps. The, 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 I mean, it was insane. So finally, I got a system in place uh, to be able to do it quickly. But then we went on to sell over 5,000 DVDs, um, and we estimate we probably made about uh, over 90,000 plus yeah. uh, with Broken, continue, and, and it still sells today. Like, I, I get orders every once in a while today. And now since Indie Film Hustle is kind of starting to ramp up again, the interest in that uh, that project and that DVD is starting to kind of build up again as well. Um, and I always found it fascinating, uh, what, since I launched Indie Film Hustle, I've had a lot of people... Um, come out of uh, like uh, text me or not text me but um, message me on Facebook like oh dude I loved you I loved your broken DVD man I've been a fan I'm like wow that it's just like feels mm-hmm. feels good as a filmmaker to hear that kind of stuff but um so t- that was my journey of how to make money back in 2005 <laughs> <laughs> which is how still was- way ahead of its time I mean that's what you were doing um, like selling direct and using uh, the internet to market your film and creating all the extra bundles was just a way ahead of its time in terms of, um, you know, what we like, what we explore here at Film Trooper and other places too that are beginning to go. Okay, you know, we can't count on the system per se anymore because it's changing tr- tremendously. So how do you control and um, your own destiny? And it's it's fantastic this way. So what what transpired out of Broken? Um, uh, what, what was your journey after that and what sort of your your perspective in terms of once you are you in Los Angeles now working Hollywood? 
Yeah, I am. Okay, that's right. So the um, like now that you have that perspective of many years working in the industry, um, do you see patterns of how people are making money or cheating people out of money <laughs> or whatever it might be? Well, I got, I, I've got patterns of cheating out of people. Money. There's, <laughs> there's many, my friend. This is a long. It'll be so, this will be a long podcast. <laughs> um, I think the pattern that I see is people creating. Um, uh, filmmakers in general, um, and I think the industry as a whole for independent filmmakers, I think are if they're smart. And filmmakers are, you know, I'm a filmmaker, but I'm also a businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the difference. A lot of filmmakers are just artists. They just want to be artists. And they're like, oh, I'll just let my producer handle that or I'll, I'll let someone else handle that. The days of a filmmaker just being a director, I'm just a writer-director, or, or that's all I want to do is be an artist – you can't make a living like that. You have to understand the entire process. You have to understand the business side of it. It's called show business for a reason. And if you look at the directors, even the big time directors who are the most successful, the Steven Spielbergs, the George Lucas, the Martin Scorsese, they all understand business. They understand the business of filmmaking. If you don't understand it, uh, it's very, very difficult to be make a living doing this, let alone be successful doing this. Um, so... From my perspective, after after Broken, um, well, to answer that question, after Broken, I, my God, it, it was a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. It, I, I opened up Num Robot, which was my um, my it still is my post production company, because I had a lot of filmmakers coming at me asking, "Can you do what you did for my for your movie on my movie?" Ah. So like, "Hey, can you do? Can you make it look as cool? Can you do this and that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure," because I had I had my VFX team, and then we started doing a ton of VFX on indie films. Uh, very affordably because we already had a lot of stuff in the, in the systems in place. Again, we were a boutique visual effects company focusing on indie films. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at budgets that were twenty grand to fifty grand, even to a hundred grand. Yeah. Um, so it was something very niche. Um, but because of Broken and the credibility that Broken gave uh, me and the and the company, uh, we started doing that. Um, I got. Oh God! Bro- I mean, the broken story is a long one, but I'll, g- I'll give you a couple. I-, I mean, seriously, it's still going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, we we went to Sundance. Uh, we weren't in Sundance, but we went to promote it at Sundance. We met a bunch of producers out there. Those producers flew us out to uh, the Toronto Film Festival. That's where I met Roger Ebert, ah. uh, and Roger Ebert gave me his review there. Um, and and. You know that that deal that that deal after being flown around and in development for a long time um, kind of fell through. The one advice I could give uh, all filmmakers if um, if you do ever get spotlight, if you ever get someone anyone's attention in Hollywood uh, with one of your projects, you have to have things in the pipeline. You can't just go, oh, I have an idea. You're done. It's over. And that's what happened with me and Broken. I got a I got called from. Sony, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Oscar-winning uh, producers called me, um, looking to you know see what we can do together. I took a lot of meetings, and everybody was excited. They're like, "Hey, you know, we wanna we wanna do something with you." I'm like, "I got an idea," and they're like, "All right, call me when the idea is fleshed out into a script." Mm-hmm. And of course, I had a year later before the script was ready, and then the script that I wrote was at least a two hundred million dollar script uh. because I had no idea how the system. And no one taught me new. No one explained yeah. the process. So when I went back to them, they're like, yeah, this is really nice, but – and then it was over. You're hot for a few seconds. If you don't capitalize on it very quickly, uh, you lose your heat, and that's exactly what happened to me and Broken. Um, so 
but because of broken, I still got a lot of different opportunities would come to me, um, you know, producing on films, uh, consulting on films, things like that, purely because of broken. I mean, I I, I can't even I've had people like 10 years later, you know, I'm meeting with like I literally when I got to L.A., I actually ran into a few people in the business to like, dude, I bought your DVD five years ago. <laughs> it's it, like changed the way I did films back then. I'm like, that's awesome. I feel old, but that's awesome. <laughs> so I'm still hoping for, uh, I'm, I'm still hoping for one of my broken fans to become a big high power executive at a film studio and go, you know, I'm going to give Alex that, that next Marvel movie. I loved him in broken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, I'm still waiting for that. So that answers uh, a little bit about what happened with broken, but where I think that, um, how are you going to make money in the future as a film, uh, as a filmmaker is going to be creating communities, not just around your films, but around the individual filmmakers or group of filmmakers, uh, around in the indie film brands mm -hmm. like yourself, like film trooper or indie film hustle or production companies. And then building those communities out and interacting with those communities, talking to those communities, uh, and growing those communities to a point where, um, they can, hopefully support what your work is because you have a really your give and take it's not just a take 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 thing it's a give and take and that's one other thing that a lot of filmmakers don't get they just they they spam out their stuff or they spam out their trailer or look at my reel or support my kickstarter but they don't understand that they have to build relationships and that's one thing that a lot of young filmmakers are, are, are don't don't even have a skill set to do you have to build that relationship with people in order to be able to work with them later. Maybe it, it could take a year or two down the line before they do something for you. But it's you know filmmaking is a lot is a long game. It's not a short game at all. Um, I'm sure you know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's definitely a long, long game. Um, and I've learned that as I've gotten older. You know, when I was younger, I, it was all about I need it now. I need it now. I want that. I want that Robert Rodriguez deal. I want that Kevin Smith deal. I want that you know I want that that lottery ticket uh, story that we all hear about. I want Harvey to come in and touch me on the head and go, you may direct you know, and give you $20 million. But I do think that, um, are you familiar with uh, Kevin Kelly's uh, Thousand uh, True Fans? I am, yes. I think in many ways that's very true. I mean, uh, for people who don't know, Kevin Kelly's executive editor of Wired Magazine, and he came out with this kind of landmark article uh, or blog post or whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it, uh, called The Thousand True Fans, stating that artists can be supported, um, can support, uh, a thousand true fans can support an artist. And what is a thousand true fans? A thousand true fans, let's say you have a 5,000 fan fan base, but a thousand of those are really true fans who are going to spend 20, 30, maybe even a hundred dollars in the course of a year on your products, your, your art, your thing. You can generate a hundred thousand dollars in, in income, which you're not going to get rich, but damn, you're making a living. Yeah. And depending, and depending on where you live in this country, a hundred thousand dollars is a hundred thousand dollars in LA. Okay. Thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars in Alabama. You're living like a king, right? Right. <laughs> so, uh, I think that's the future. I think that filmmakers have to understand that, and 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 have to understand how to build communities, how to interact with them, um, and then you can have them support you through Kickstarter or Indiegogo, um, and uh, just you know, and then also building up things like you were saying. You can't just sell the film anymore. It's yeah. not enough. You need to you need to package in merch. You need to package in. Uh, extras you need to package in content things that 
that audience member wants. And that's what I did with Broken. I, everyone asks, like, who are you focusing on? I'm like, I'm folk. My, my core audience is independent filmmakers. That's who I was. I knew that there was no way in hell, you know, mom and pa, you know, Joe Citizen in the middle of the country somewhere is going to buy this for 20 bucks. But a filmmaker who wants to get into filmmaking will buy this for 20 bucks. So I, I instinctively, instinctively, I knew all this back then. I, it wasn't a master plan. I kind of just went through it. Uh, through the process um and that's i think how people how filmmakers can make a, a living going forward and i think it i think even the big studios are starting to feel that mm-hmm. like at, a, at a certain they have so much money and so much power to push out product and and some of it or most of it not that great but if you start looking at it uh, you don't need a lot of people you don't need a lot of people to buy your your products to make a living a uh, thousand two thousand people uh, or in the course of the billions that live on the planet it's 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 very doable, but it takes work and a lot of it. Uh, and in thus lies the the title hustle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What yeah, do you? Uh, what is your perspective now? I mean, I know that that is a dream that everyone's you know young filmmaker coming out that they want to feel this um, the American Idol you know yeah. syndrome. They want to be anointed. They want to be picked. They want to be discovered. And but that's as as old as the Hollywood lore itself with the starlet yeah. that's working at mm-hmm. a cafe being discovered. Where are you now in terms of where do you still want that dream or do you, is there a different, you know, more realistic, well, not saying that, that can't happen, but is there a different perspective that you have that you're like, this is where I find happiness or, or bliss or joy that, that this is what I would like to, to see, you know, my career or, you know, as things are changing. I think for myself, uh, speaking for myself, um, I feel a lot of joy doing indie film hustle right now. Um, I I'm I'm seeing the reaction that people are giving it. Um, I'm helping people. Um, I'm helping filmmakers who are my 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 niche. I love filmmakers. I love uh, I love their passion. Um, we're all we're all a, a motley crew. <laughs> you know, we're, we're we're definitely outside the box of uh, mainstream uh, America as far as uh, artists are concerned. And unlike other artists, other artists, you know, if you're a writer, you could just pick up a pen or, or, or keyboard and write. If you're a musician, you pick up a, you know, you pick up a, uh, a guitar and you, you make a song. When we have to do stuff, we got to get a whole bunch of people together. <laughs> we need a lot. It's an expensive art. Um, it's a very expensive art. So that's why the business aspects of, of it have to be so clear in that in the filmmaker's head. But for me, Indie Film Hustle is something that I really enjoy doing right now. I think that uh, as, as time goes on, I've turned to looking at the long game a lot more than I used to. I used to look at... Um, Oh, I'm going to make this movie, and then this movie is going to spin me off into, into this, and I'm going to make this, and I have a script ready for that. I'm not as much that anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit more, um, I, you know. I've been beaten up. I've got a, I got a pretty thick skin now. You know, I've got a, a hide, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business, the business is brutal. Yeah, you know that as well as I do. Uh, a lot of filmmakers don't understand how brutal it is. It's a brutal, brutal, brutal business. And if you can survive the business and continue to strive in it. Um, you'll become a much, um, I'm not going to say harder, but a little bit more realistic in how to actually make a living doing this. And I think when you stop stop looking for that American Idol dream and start looking into like, okay, I'm going to be doing this for the next 10 years. What are, my, what are my plans? 
to get to where I need to be and start laying out goals, start laying out um, ideas uh, for what, where you want to be at certain times, how these are, th these things are going to spin off to these things. Um, a lot of time you never know what's going to happen. Like I had no idea when I made broken, what was going to happen with it. I just, I really, it was a complete fluke. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I worked at it and I built it and I did it, but it wasn't a plan. When I wrote down, when I sat and write, wrote the script, I wasn't going to go, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make a DVD of this and I'm going to do this. I, I, it all kind of fell into place. And then all the stuff that spawned off of it, I couldn't plan. So you can't plan everything, but you have to be prepared for when things happen. So like a perfect example is, I got flown up to the Toronto Film Festival. I go to a screening of the the production company that is courting us, and in the back row there's Roger Ebert, rest in peace. Mm -hmm. um, and and I go, well, let's let's go up talk to him. And I did not even imagine um, imagine that he would even. You know, I, I didn't even think about giving him my film. I'm like, I'm. Are you kidding me? I'm some kid from you know florida with yeah. a, a short that's not even in the festival but i went up to him and just like hey oh my god you're amazing roger oh yeah and you know roger was very he's i i can't even tell you uh it is one of those things that because roger ebert was a god he was a film god he mm -hmm. was one of those guys that he was the harvey weinstein of his world like he he could anoint you you know in, in, a, in a lot of ways and he dabbed a little bit of that that dust on me uh very very um generous generously he did that um so after i started I kept talking to him about how you know we were filmmaker i was a filmmaker do this all this and this he's like can i take a picture of you and i said well sh well, well sure roger <laughs> and and then i and only thing in my head this is how naive i was i'm like now i can ask him if i could take a picture with him <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't thinking of anything farther along this is how naive i was then he just started writing down all my information like you know broken this and that he goes this will make a nice little blurb for my my blog. And I go, would you like a copy of it? And he goes, sure. And I had a DVD with me. And that's what I mean by being prepared. Mm -hmm. You never know. If I didn't have that DVD with me, I would have never gotten the review. And it would have that, that opportunity would have been lost forever. And I'm not saying you have to walk around with your movie 24-7, but you have to be prepared for when opportunities present themselves. And if you're not prepared, they will go by and you won't get them again. I never met Roger again. I talked to him a little bit on email uh, over the years um, before his passing, but um, that opportunity never happened again. So that's one thing that filmmakers have to do in the long game is to be prepared for opportunities as they come, specifically like um, having a script or two or three or four in the genre that you're shooting. So if you shoot a a, a rom-com, don't come out with a horror script. It's going to be real difficult for you to get that thing produced. But if you have a rom-com, you have four other rom-coms, then that might be a little bit easier for you to get the next thing going and so on. And then you can change genre once you've established yourself as a filmmaker uh, that's done three or four movies. And then you can jump genre all you like. Is the... Just, I mean, this first of all, it's crazy. It's just crazy the story just like you said like you were there in the moment took advantage of the opportunity and just it just sort of came you know and and now you have that and it's a great like photo and uh, experience i'm curious from you working in the in la and in the industry for a while seeing um let's say broken dreams but i guess the bigger question <laughs> is i guess the bigger question is is the grass really greener on the other side those people that do um 
because we always hear about the outliers. Like the, it's always like the one or two individuals uh, that the lottery tickets, the lottery tickets that yeah. that's everybody grasps onto to, you know, fuel their dreams. But I was curious of more realistically, is the grass greener on the other side, or like you said, if building community and owning your own uh, world and creating your own um, community relationships, um, is that the greener grass? Well, um, to, I wanted to say something about the, the lottery ticket and people holding on to a dream. The entire industry is fed off of that, those dreams. Hollywood <laughs> has been selling that to filmmakers, specifically film schools have been selling that to filmmakers since they started. Everyone's like, you can be Spielberg, you can be Chris Nolan, you could be David Fincher. But the realities are that there is only one Chris Nolan. There is only one Steven Spielberg. You can be the best of what you are, uh, or you can be, you're not going to be Martin Scorsese. You're not going to be Quentin Tarantino. It's never going to happen because there's only one of them. But you can be the best of what you can be. Now, the best of what you can be and the opportunities that you are going to get, are they going to get you to that status? You and I both know that there's a handful of guys that get to that status out of the millions of people trying to get it. I'm not saying it's not possible, but you have to then look at a realistic way of going, okay, well, I'm going to aim for that, but I'm going to figure out a way to make a living while I'm trying to aim for that. Like, I'm aiming for that still. You know, I'm mm-hmm. still going, I'm still going after that dream myself. You know, um, I've been doing this 20 years and I'm still going after that dream, but I've, my thing, I always fell back on a post. I got, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be a PA. I need to make a living mm-hmm. while I chase my dream. So I became an editor. Uh, and then from an editor, colorist, and post-supervisor and grew into everything else. But I made a living doing that. And that's how I make my living as well as directing commercials and music videos and other things like that. Um, and then doing my own personal shorts uh, and projects. So um, I just wanted to, I wanted to get that out there a little bit because I think a lot of a lot of young filmmakers, they just keep looking at those lottery tickets. And I mean, I, literally, I think we can count them on one or two hands in the last 20 years how many lottery tickets there have been. Mm-hmm. You know, literally, the, Pan- the, the Blair Witch, the Pan- Paranormal Activity, Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, you know, a handful of other guys, you know? Yeah. It's, 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 that's it. It's really, really, really difficult to, um, to do that. Um, so you were asking me, I, 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 please forgive me, the greener, uh, the grasses, I, I, I went off on a tangent. Yeah, I that's right. I was just curious, like, because we've seen stories. I know, I mean, you and I probably know many professionals that have worked in the system. And from an outsider's perspective, it's like, oh, my God, they got the lottery ticket or they, they got in. Mm-hmm. And then it's not as green as you think it is on the other side. And whereas you mean in the studio system, in like the studio working. system, like the, you know, the, the dream of getting anointed and getting picked is, you know, um, oh, yeah. versus um, ask, why don't you ask Josh to thank that? <laughs> ask, ask him that same question today i'm sure he'll give you a wonderful answer <laughs> that's like that his story is a you oh. know cautionary tale that is um that happens every once in a while i mean uh many a couple of years ago what, what remember the guy who did um whatever cap what was that oh, oh, budan saints and then uh captain and oh god and Scott, the world of tomorrow yes yeah, yes yeah. that guy yes yes yeah well, I mean, Angelina Jolie, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow—like he had this whole thing—and I've never heard of him again. Yeah, and uh, it's it's just fascinating. So, I mean, we hear those stories come up, and we hear the uh, so it can happen, and it can mm-hmm. also implode. But I think the um, then even those people that have amazing resumes that are like in the history of film, oh yeah, they're disillusioned now with the industry 
and they are look people are looking for there's something beautiful that somebody's like just pure to what they create and they've built a system that 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 is in alignment with that purity that is envious of everyone that has to sort of compromise or sell out to a system you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i was just curious of are you beginning to see more examples of artists individuals filmmakers that have built a community mm-hmm. um, and are just they are actually living the dream in terms of the grass is greener but it's completely outside of the industry mm-hmm. but um i don't know just so your perspective on that i think that um like the perfect example that uh, um, Josh Tank, the Tank is his last name, right? Tank or Trank? I think it's uh, Trank. 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 Well, look yeah, at Trank. Me. You know what? Let me look it up. I got a computer right here, quick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There's, there's I, no, you're right. You're like, is it Josh, Josh uh, right. Trank? Uh, I think. For you guys who Josh don't know, Trank. Thanks. Sorry, guys. Josh Trank. Trank. Uh, the guys that you guys don't know, he's the director of Fantastic Four. Um, and uh, believe it or not, I had a, a buddy of mine who worked on it, um, and he was telling me stories. Um, long time before uh, about this stuff. Uh, and I was like, really? This is all going on? He's like, mm-hmm. And so they're basically waiting until the film came out, had the bomb, and that way all this dirty laundry could be like aired out. Like they yeah, didn't I mean, want to say it before it happened. No, of course not, because they were hoping something would happen. But um, I've, I've, I mean, I saw Chronicle. And mm-hmm. Chronicle was a good, it was a good, good little movie. I can't, I'm not going to say it was a bad movie. It was a good, it was a good flick. You know, it wasn't like monumental, but it was a good flick. Mm-hmm. Um, and now from a $12 million movie, Hollywood gave this kid a hundred and four and kid. He's well, he has 30, he's 31. Now he gave them, gave him $140 million Marvel franchise to reboot. <laughs> then they gave him the keys to the castle or the kingdom. And they gave him a star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kid was living the dream. Yeah. And then he imploded. He completely and totally imploded on himself. Uh, and the way he's reacting to all the bad press, uh, I'll tell you what, when I, when I, when I did Broken, uh, I was around 30, 31, and I literally went after every negative comment. Like, <laughs> every, <laughs> every bad review, I would like, oh, and I would literally go after everyone online, like, Are you, I'm defending myself. So, but that's a very young filmmaker way of doing things. You can't do that. So I, and that was at my small level. Can you imagine that the entire industry has completely crapped on this guy. He he'll never work again, especially the way he's handling it. Oh yeah. You know, and I have a perfect example of of someone who had a similar pro a similar bomb and look how he turned it around. The director of Fame. Do you remember that reboot that reboot that they did a few years back? The fame? second one, right? Yeah, the last one, right? Yeah, yeah. That bombed, and it was yeah. a horrendous movie. <laughs> so that director and they, a lot of people came down on the guy. The guy quietly just went away, and he did. Uh, of uh, his own uh, fan film of Mortal Kombat, the way he wanted to do it. Ah, and he kept quiet. He didn't do anything. He's like, you know what? I better shut the hell up. I'm gonna go over here. I'm gonna make my make my little short film of Mortal Kombat and release it to the world. And I'm gonna put some money into it because I got some cash. I'm gonna get some real actors, and we're gonna do this for fun. And that spawned off into a web series, which now I think they're actually gonna reboot. Yeah, do just a uh, little news pressing. They can make and, another. And, yeah. And guess who's directing it? He is. Ah. And look how how brilliantly that guy spun something that was pretty much career ending. Yeah. Because that's done. When you do a studio movie and you die off the first one, chances of you getting another one is going to be so, so hard. You have to start again almost. So he did, but he was super smart about it. So 
Josh, unfortunately, has not done that. So um, anyway, so I'm off off a of gossip. For a <laughs> but Back it's a cautionary tale that's worth understanding. I mean, so yeah. Do you ever see that documentary Overnight? Uh, no. What's oh, uh Overnight? The guy who did Boondock Saints. Oh okay. Oh yes, 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 yes. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know it was called Overnight, but I I'm familiar with that whole story. If, yes. If if there was one film that should be seen, shown in every film school on the planet, it's that one. How someone completely and he literally got the keys to the castle. Mm-hmm. Harvey, Harvey Weinstein at the at the uh, the top of his power. Um, they gave him like a million dollars, two million dollars for the script, everything. He he had oh. the whole thing. Yeah, and and he just completely imploded. And this documentary shows the entire process. It was fascinating to watch, and now to the point where I mean he can't get arrested. I know he did Boondock Six Two, and he's trying to do Boondock Six Three, um, but other than the Boondocks, he's he can't do anything else. And because of the way he acted, so another cautionary tale of 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 you know directors gone gone crazy. Yeah, <laughs> once given once given that opportunity. And but then you know the for the hope that there's there's. Then there's this, the flip side, which is oh, yeah. like Robert uh, Rodriguez Col- or Col- the recently Colin uh, uh, Trevor Rowe. I can't remember oh, his last God. name. The Jurassic World coming oh. from a little indie film called Safety Not Guaranteed, which is one of my favorites. I love that little film to see him blow up with like this huge film. Third biggest movie of all time. Yeah. And they're like, OK, now you can have Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, but that, And, you know, I'm really curious about the process that studios are doing now where they're mm-hmm. taking young Un- unproven talent yeah and and giving them so much money like giving them 150 million to do a, 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 a re- i mean that could have been another colossal uh you know mistake yeah but it and then obviously it's worked for marvel marvel's done very well with it um you know the guardians of the galaxy is arguably the best marvel movie in my opinion made um and um, oh, the director's name i see james his face. gunn james Thank gunn you. yeah which i love his indie stuff but mm-hmm. like you look at slither and you yeah. go marvel no yeah so well it's kind of like it's kind of weird looking back at even like david lynch coming from a racer head like how did he go from a racer head to elephant man which is a beautiful mm. just thoughtful tear-jerking film and it's like some you know mel brooks of all people saw the talent and yeah. was able to it so that's i mean there are a lot of stories like that where you're like what how did uh, you know and then, and, then they, and then they gave him dune and that's a whole other conversation yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> And then there was another implosion uh, or fight. Actually, not implosion. I think that was just a straight up creative fight. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to tell David Lynch how to direct something. Seriously. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Just let him do his thing. That's interesting. Um, so so anyway. to, answer, to answer your question, uh, is, is it greener on the other side? I mean, I've had I've had filmmakers, friends of mine who um, have won South by Southwest and Sundance and Toronto and won these film huge film festivals and have been given bigger indie films. Not like you know, Trevor or <laughs> right. anything like that, but like bigger, you know, so if they made a film for 40 grand, then they're given 5 million, you know, or they're given 20 million and they, and they go from there, which those 20 millions of almost non-existent budget nowadays. Yeah. But, um, but they're given bigger, bigger things and they actually work within the studio system a bit. And so I see a lot of them, they just go into development hell. They're sitting there forever. They've got a fight every minute of every day with creatives or suits that have no idea what a, what creatives are or how to make a good movie. I mean, Fantastic Four was written, rewritten and redone by the studio. Yeah. Obviously, they 
I know it's not the worst movie ever made. I haven't seen it, but I, well, I my wife, my wife and daughter are just you know they're not like you know film we call it, like geeks the, you know, geeks that way. Well, they but they love their superhero films, right? And they went to see it uh, while I was away, and they they said, "Oh my God, it is god awful." Like they were, they, and this is, you know, like th- this is my daughter who's pretty cool with like, old, just old like, is, old is she? she's 13, but you know, oh. she, she's like, she was binge watching all these Disney films because they were more entertaining than the, well, yeah. these, uh, like, like these cheesy sort of uh, music uh, Disney films. Yeah. But the whole point is, um, yeah, even their reaction was, wow, like is How- probably one of the worst films they've ever seen. And this is coming just from like, not film people. This is no, just, that's just you know. like audience member. Yeah. Well, because the story wasn't there, they were trying to do you know reboot a, a dark and broody Fantastic Four. This, but just in general, Fantastic Four is a very difficult property to to bring to the screen. It hasn't been done properly yet, uh, and I don't think I don't think they're going to try again for another twenty years. Maybe Marvel <laughs> could do something with it if once he, they get the rights back, they might incorporate the characters back in somehow. Yeah. Uh, you know, they might be able to bring it in. They're the first family of Marvel. I mean, they're they're the first the boys out of the gate. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you remember Spider Man number one had the Fantastic Four on it, so it would sell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to make sure it would sell. So I mean, uh, but um, again, we're going back to Fantastic Four. Sorry, uh, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um, so is the grass greener? I don't think so. I think that like when you're given like like Stanley says, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> you know, I can't even imagine how Trevor work that scenario like uh, with Jurassic World like mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how many people were up his butt during the process you got Steven Spielberg in the wings mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't even imagine that kind of pressure like that kind of that kind of oversight you know it's a huge reboot it's a monster the studio must have been all over him but it takes a special kind of person to work within the system Someone who can actually work like Chris Nolan is a perfect example of a very good artist, a very good filmmaker, you know, one of the best in his generation. Mm-hmm. And he works within the system flawlessly. You know, Eastwood, Eastwood started it back in the day. Yeah. He's been, I mean, he's been working within the system since Play Misty for me, 1970. And he just figured it out. He just figured out how to do it. Keep the budgets low, and he can do whatever he wants. And occasionally he'll do one, you know, he'll direct, he'll he'll act in one, and so on and so forth. Uh, Ron Howard figured it out. You know, Ron Howard is you know Oscar winner and all that kind of stuff. But he couldn't even get money for Rush. Yeah, like the studio wouldn't give money for Rush. And by the way, I don't know if you saw Rush. Rush was an awesome movie. Like mm-hmm. it was. I could see it's not the most mainstream movie in the world, but it's a really good movie. Like he, he's a, I mean, he's a good storyteller. Um, but Chris Nolan, who works in that system beautifully, from Memento, which is arguably one of the best indie films of the past twenty years, yeah, to jump to Batman, <laughs> yeah, and and launch Batman, and then from Batman, he's like, oh, I want to do a little thing called The Prestige, and then I want to do this thing called Inception after you know after Batman. So it's like he's worked, and now he did um, oh God, Interstellar. Uh, thank you, Interstellar. Uh, he did Interstellar, you know, which is. Like who else can make Interstellar seriously in the system? Like how yeah, many- it's uh, it's rare and yeah, or I'm, Inception yeah. or Inception for that matter. Like yeah. who in their right mind? If I walked in with the Inception script and had my name on it, literally, and I walked it in, they'd be like, "Yeah, I don't. I, I, yeah, this is not going to happen." It's because of him, because who he is, because what the trust that they have in him, um, and now he's proven himself multiple times to be a, a real. And now he can work within the system as much as he wants. Spielberg worked within the system. There's certain people like Lucas did not. <laughs> Lucas yeah. 
Lucas did not work well in the system. He's not one of those guys that works well in the system. So he created his own system. Mm-hmm. Mind you, he had a little movie called Star Wars to finance his his ventures, but um, but he completely worked out of the system so much that he sold his system to Disney for four point seven billion dollars. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and he is the biggest independent filmmaker of all time. Yes, if, yes. I hate it. You know, people like he's just like no. He is an independent filmmaker. He just plays with a lot bigger toys than you and I do. It's funny because like. Um, you know, we get into this perspective, but like, if, really, like he did. He's the the poster boy of like what you could do on your own, like mm-hmm. and in terms of building that empire. And there's also discussion like his, you know, people view his uh, it's view his prequel films as mm-hmm. more of less like they were his fan films. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're probably the most elaborate fan films of all fan films. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on it. You know, I mean, out of the prequels, the thing I love the most was Yoda fighting in the second one. I thought that was the first time we saw Yoda move. Mm-hmm. I'm, look, I'm, I'm a huge, I mean, I'm a, I'm a geek. I'm yeah, a yeah. Huge Star Wars geek. I have a life-size Yoda in the house. I've had him since 1999. Um, so much so that I have, hold on. Reach out, sense the force <laughs> He's always around me wherever I am. So I'm a big Star Wars geek. I've studied Star Wars and not only the filmmaking aspect of it, but the business aspect of it I've, I've read just tons and tons of book on on George Lucas and how he did what he did and the genius move uh, the genius move to hold the the, the, um, the merchandising rights which is not as big as Bill Gates uh, getting his his coup de, coup de quoi, I forgot mm. how to say coup de quoi? Uh, I don't know don't ask me I can't speak English <laughs> his, his, uh, his, um, his big moment where he told IBM I want to license this operating system to you. I don't want to sell it to you. Is that okay? And yeah. that and that created the richest man, the richest fortune on the, the planet. Yeah. So similarly to a smaller scale, uh, Lucas did the same thing. And, um, you know, you got to give it to him whether you love it or hate it. I mean, the guy did amazing things. Uh, and can I tell you a quick story on how I, I met George? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I, I, this is my this is my geek out story. So I met George Lucas. Um, I was working uh, at my office in uh, Toluca Lake here in, in um in uh in, in uh close to Burbank in Cal in, in California in Los Angeles, and my buddy texts me and he goes, "Hey man, George Lucas is eating lunch next door." And I'm like, "That's a horrible joke." Like I like, text, like that's a horrible joke. And then I said, oh, "That's a really obscure joke." Re- no, he can. And then I walked over to him. I'm like, "Where is he?" he goes, "He's right next door. Go next next door." And there's a little little sandwich shop next door. And there you go. Holy crap! There's George Lucas with uh, his daughter. Um, and I know it's his daughter because I stalk him through all of the movies <laughs> I've watched over and documentaries I've watched over the years so I could recognize his daughter. How many um, years ago was this then? Oh, this was oh, this is before the sale. Oh my so, god. Okay. So he was in town. Okay, gotcha. He was in town and Disney's down the street. So yeah. I'm figuring that that's why he was there. And his daughter lived, I think he lives in the area or something like that. So that's probably hmm. what it is. So anyway, so all of a sudden, every man, grown ass man in the post facility. Every one of them turn into Justin Bieber fans. Like, oh my god, oh my god, seriously, oh my god, oh my god. Every single one. The women around were like, what, what's going on? Like, it's George Lucas. Oh my god, it's George Lucas. What are we gonna do? It's George Lucas. Like, oh my god, oh my god. So, uh, me included, I just I completely geeked out. So, and again, being prepared is one of those things. Just that morning, guess what arrived from Amazon? In the mail? Would you buy something? What'd you I get? Bought, I bought something on on, on Amazon. I'd always wanted to buy it, and I had bought it because I wanted it for my office. Was it a poster? No. No, no. A, 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 Star, a Star Wars lunchbox. Oh, my God. <laughs> a Star Wars lunchbox. 
had arrived nine o'clock that morning. Now, between nine and 12, the lunchbox would have been there in that three hour window because once I left for lunch, mm-hmm. I would have taken it back to my home office. Yeah. It would have never stayed at my work office. I have I have autograph pens in my in my office all the time for clients to sign posters and stuff. So I had my pen, I had my George Lucas lunch, I had my Star Wars lunchbox, and I said, I'm gonna get this autograph by him. And you know George Lucas never autographs because he's yeah. George Lucas, he doesn't have to. Um, so even if you look online to find a George Lucas autograph, it costs like two, three thousand dollars now. It's like ridiculous. So um, I didn't want to be that guy that yeah. goes and interrupts the poor man while he's eating lunch with his daughter. I'm like, and he would see me a mile away. Like, there's, oh God, here comes another Star Wars geek with a yeah, lunchbox. Yeah, yeah. What are you, 40? Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be that guy. So, um, the receptionist, she's like, sees all this turmoil in my face. She's like, do you want me to just go over and do it for you? He's like, I go, oh my God, yeah, he'll never see you coming. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes over, gets it for him. The, the daughter's like, dad, just sign it for him. And I go, make sure you make it out to me because I'm never selling this. This is yeah. never going to go on eBay. It's for me. And he signed it. And Did he ever see you or just the reception? No, 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 I, no, no, I, no I went over. I went over and like, like just looked. I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> like crazy stalker, man. I swear to God. I mean, I'm sure he's everywhere he goes. He gets these. I mean, I mean, seriously, he's George Lucas. So you and especially in L.A. Are you kidding me? So I just sat there and I pretend to order a sandwich. While I looked. I'm like, there's George Lucas. And then inside my my head, it's like, yes, George Lucas. Oh my God. <laughs> So I um I got my autograph. Uh, I posted it on Facebook. I had never gotten so many comments from all my film geek friends uh, in history. So I'm actually going to write a, a whole blog post on this. Oh, you have to. Yeah. Puzzle. I'm going to do a whole thing. And I actually have a picture with it. Uh, it's like one of my prize presents. Oh, and by the way, the second I got back in my office, I ordered a case for it. <laughs> in two days, there was a case for it, and now it sits in my office and – and like clients that come in, they're like, is that George Lucas? I'm like, yes, it is. Would you like to hear the story? So um, I got to look hate, at it. Yeah, I'm like, I, yeah I, I, can I look at it? I'm like, yeah, I should, don't touch it. Uh, I, hate, <laughs> I hate to go. I didn't mean to go off on the on the geek geek tangent, but. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You know how this works. Like, this is an opportunity to, we get to humanize Alex Ferrari, oh, you know. <laughs> please don't say that again. <laughs> hey, everyone. That concludes my first part of my interview with Alex Ferrari of Indie Film Hustle. As you can see, we kind of got off on tangents uh, of the conversation. But, you know, once you're rolling, you're rolling. (laughs) Be sure to check out part two where we discuss uh, the mechanics of how YouTube stars are changing the parameters of Hollywood. As well as you'll hear a very interesting story of how Alex uh, showed some of his true entrepreneurial colors when he first moved out to Los Angeles. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode and you enjoy the podcast altogether, please leave a ratings and review over at iTunes. Uh, You can simply just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes. That'll take you to the iTunes page. Subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating and review, and I will read it on the next episode, Uh, like this particular review that came in. It said, Scott McMahon has a true heart for the indie filmmaker. He's an A-list without realizing it. Thank you very much. He could keep his information to himself and just run with it and leave others to fend for themselves. But you can tell that he comes from a place of authenticity and wants to be a contribution. We are trans Transitioning from a business that was very limited in accessibility to new talent to a business that blows the doors wide open for emerging talent to show their stuff. The key to it, however, is to create the stuff that your audience wants to see, and Scott breaks that down. The challenge is to take the coaching. 
and his book rocks too. Wow, thank you very much. He's on the journey with the rest of us, and I couldn't imagine a better guy to be part of that journey. Well, thank you so much. That's from Jim Henson in L.A. Thank you so much for the rating and review, and check in next time for either a Film Trooper podcast or one of our free live hangout sessions on Film Marketing Fridays. That's it for now. I'll check in with you guys next time. Bye.